thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're looking through the book of John uh, for a little while into the future. And we've called this the portraits of Jesus in the book of John. Uh, last week we looked at John as the word of God in John chapter 1, if you remember that. And that was... Uh, where John made this very bold claim that Jesus was the word that was God come as man. And if you remember that, and we got a little heady, uh, but it was somewhat necessary to understand what John was talking about when uh, in the terminology there and stuff. Uh, this is Magritte's son. Yeah, there it is. This is Magritte's uh, painting. It's called The Son of Man. And this sermon is entitled The Son of Man. So I thought that fit, right? Uh, it was painted in 1964. And Magritte said this, he said, at least it hides, you know, you only have part of this quote up there, but I, I, there's quite a bit more. He says, at least it hides the face partly. Well, you have the apparent face, the apple, hiding the visible but hidden, the face of the person. It's something that happens constantly. Everything we see hides another thing. We always want to see what is hidden by what we see. There is an interest in that which is hidden. And which the visible does not show us, this interest can take the form of a quiet, intense feeling, a sort of conflict, one might say, between the visible that is hidden and the visible that is present. Now, I thought that due to the title, The Son of Man, the title of this work, and the fact that uh, John, in his writing, is always sort of uh, hiding imagery and and little gems throughout his writing. He just kind of drops them along the ground. Um, that this would be a fitting image to start with. However, I should caution, I want to say this from the very beginning, um, God is not hiding. He's very plainly there for us to discover. I don't mean also to imply that John is some sort of a Gnostic, right? That he's, he's out there like, you know, the spiritual elite hiding little, you know, truths for the, only the spiritual elite to discover, you know, and all the rest of us dolts have to like get by with crumbs, right? That's not what he's doing. He's simply dropping gems throughout his writing for us to discover easily. If, uh, you know, modern Christians right now, we have a real problem in, in, the, in Christendom. Uh, they, they often fall into the trap of the new Gnosticism, where they think that there's some new hidden meaning behind the text that no one has ever discovered before, and only they can do it, right? It's, it's, they spend their time reinterpreting Scripture, and, and often after reading errant writings of other people, which tread outside of church orthodoxy and, their un, and our understanding as a body of, of the gospel message. But let me just say, there isn't. There isn't, right? There isn't. The gospel is straightforward. It was written on a third grade level for everybody in in the world to understand. The New Testament writers wrote very strongly against such Gnostic ideas, right? And, And God's not progressive in character. You know, he's revealed what we need to know about himself in the word of God and in the person of Jesus Christ as we explored last week. And we may be discovering new truths as Christians as we grow deeper and more intimate with Christ, that's for sure. But these are the truths that the church has discovered before us. That's why when you talk to an older Christian, you say, wow, I just saw this in the scriptures. They go, yeah, because they've been there, right? They've been there. God's truth doesn't change because God doesn't change. God is unchanging in nature, right? There's a tendency in the new Gnosticism to focus efforts on changing anything and everything outward 
and not addressing the personal sin and pride of the person, right? Which is misleading many Christians right now in our day and derails us from pursuing God's glory and God's mission. So for our purposes today, as we look at Jesus as the divine word last week, you remember that, there is something hiding behind that, that divinity, but it's not hiding that we can't find it, right? It, and that is simply his humanity. And it is a theological point that you need to swallow and ingest and remember that God is fully, he, Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. Right? He's fully God and fully man. And so today we want to take a little glimpse into Jesus as a man, you know, a part of a family, right? You know, with a mom and who cares about the sort of minute details and, and the stresses that we face as people. Turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, page 724 in your church Bibles, if I'm correct. I'm not, I think that's the page. 724, John chapter 2. Now, verse 1 of John chapter 2 says, this occurs on the third day. We're going to read it in a minute. When Jesus and his, and, and his mother and the disciples <coughs> had been invited to a wedding in, in, um, in Cana in Galilee. And, but the question right away is the third day, after, you know, beyond what, you know, what, what, like three days after what? Well, John is referring to the third day after Jesus returns from the area near Jericho. And, uh, you'll, you'll remember those stories in a minute when I talk about it, but Cain is about 10 miles, uh, north of Nazareth and about 80 miles from Jericho, uh, where Jesus had been, uh, baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. Remember that? And he had fasted for 40 days out in the wilderness and this three-day journey was uphill and rugged. And uh, imagine, I, I, you know, I, I like to like, put myself into the story, and I think that's a healthy practice, is to imagine Jesus walking along with the disciples. Imagine you were a disciple walking along with him, talking for those three days over rugged terrain. You know, when Kim and I backpack together, it is, it, there's just no better time to get really close and intimate with a person, right? And it's a lot of time to get to know to somebody. He must have been very relational in many ways. And by the time they reached um, Cana, they must have been worn out. They were traveling like 25 to 35 miles a day probably, right? Kim and I have done, as I said, many long backpacking trips. It's wonderful. We average about 15 miles a day over rugged terrain because Kim holds me back. I could do 30, but, you know, no, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) but we all, you know, we've all grown up with these images of a soft, almost effeminate Jesus. And, and, but he and the disciples must have been very strong men with calloused feet. Now, I'm not saying that women can't do this. I don't go there. I'm not even saying that. My wife hiked with me 240 miles in California. I, I know she can do it, you know, right? But, but as a carpenter, his hands were probably scarred and dry, right? He, you know, he probably had very powerful forearms, very strong forearms. When he put his hand on your neck, it probably felt like a vice, right? You know, I've always imagined he would feel like my grandfather's hand. My grandfather was a big man with Hands like dinner plates when you were a little kid, right? Or my father's hands, who's here today, and, and has, you know, he was stronger and rougher than my mom, right? You know, a strong male touch is a reassurance to a child. You know, you think about all the children right now growing up in this world without a strong male touch in their lives and what it does to them. 
Jesus physicality his physical body how he touched people you know and 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 was around people and his presence must have led a reassurance to many people imagine what his touch would feel like just sit there and imagine that for a minute you know we begin in uh verses one and two here it says on the third day there was a wedding at cana in galilee and the mother of jesus was there and jesus also was invited to this wedding with his disciples So John starts out, as I said, three days after his return from Jesus' baptism of water and then a lengthy fast, and he's now at this wedding feast. And and John, notice, will close his book, the whole book, when we get to the end of it, with Jesus rising from the grave after his baptism into death. And these little gems, these little things, these little bookending details are no mistake. John does these things for a reason. And we notice right away that Jesus is invited into this celebration. He's meant to be there. This family wants him there. And he's showing himself to be different already than in all the other religious leaders. He walks with, with, with fishermen. He walks with tax collectors. He walks with prostitutes. He's, he's rugged. He's strong. He knew what it meant to work. And, and he involves himself in the everyday affairs of people at a local wedding somewhere in this obscure corner of Galilee in a small town. If God were to show up right now, if he was just going to show up in the world right now, we might expect him to go meet with world leaders. But most likely, he'd be at a wedding in Camden for a young couple. Wouldn't he? I think he would. Jesus, the Son of Man, cared for and walked with people. That's a very powerful statement. No other religion can make it, by the way. Do you know that? In Islam, for instance, I'm going off script a little bit. When Islam, Islam believes that the, the book was, was given to us, only the word, the written words. What Scripture teaches is the word came and made his dwelling among us. There's no religion that says that. We are totally and absolutely unique in that. And it's a very important fact. So imagine Jesus at your wedding. You know, if he were here, would you expect him to care enough to show up at your reception? Right? Probably not. I wouldn't expect him to, but he might surprise you. He might show up at your wedding. He might say, you know what? He might take the lowest seat and he might just sit down and say, you know what? I'm really glad to be here to celebrate your marriage today and then hug you with those big, powerful arms. That's a good feeling. Does he care about you that much? He does. I don't think he does. I know he does. I know it. I'm assured of it. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no more wine, right? They have no wine. When we lived in Lampung, South Sumatra, we attended a lot of weddings. It seemed like everybody was getting married, you know, all the time. You know, one wedding in particular I remember, remember very well because it was so exhausting. It went on for a whole week. Uh, weddings in Lampung will go on for days, on da- days upon days. And um, this one did just that. And it didn't stop for anything, day or night. It just kept going. People were sleep deprived. It was crazy. It was dancing. There was music. There was chanting. There was food. You know, a lot of food all the time. It was crazy. They have these little, little mushy 
jelly-like cookie things that they would make. But all the guys would smoke clove cigarettes in these houses that were closed up. And these cookies would be sitting there all night long with that, just soaking up that smoke. Ah, <laughs> oh, you'd have to eat that. They'd be like offering it to you. You have to eat it. And you're like, oh, gosh, tastes like an ashtray. It was horrible. It was horrible. But if that family ran out of food, even those smoke-filled cookies, that would have been a very shameful thing upon them. It would have been very, because it would have said that we can't afford to take care of our guests, right? And the same is true here. These weddings would go on for quite a, time, quite a long time. And when the wine ran out, that was something that was very shameful to them. We notice that this is probably some sort of a relative of the family or something since Mary and Jesus are invited to it and she seems to somehow be involved in the inner workings of it. We're not really totally sure about that. But remember, Mary is Jesus' mother. He is Jesus' mother. A woman from a small town who had been pregnant outside of wedlock. She walked with that. Joseph, her husband, isn't mentioned here, and you know people believe that he may have passed away by this time, but we imagine Mary always lived under a cloud of suspicion concerning Jesus. People were probably always asking, well, who was really the father, right? They didn't believe all this Holy Spirit stuff. So Mary, at this wedding, not only identifies with the shame that this family would feel when the wine ran out, but is cognizant of her own shame among these people as well. And with her son, and questions of paternity floating all around them, she intuitively knows that he can take away their shame. And in a sense, here is hers as well, uh, you know, as he takes care of these, otherwise what we might consider petty details. Should God care about the wine at a wedding banquet? Well, apparently he does because Jesus cares to take away our shame. Jesus cares to take away our shame. You might think I'm making too big of a deal of it, but it is true. You know, how many of us live with something which haunts us which we really don't want it to come out in the open or, or is hidden back in the recesses of our soul. We hope it never comes to light. You know, many of us get stopped in life by some sort of a trauma. We can't get past it. We can't grow past it. It scares the crap out of us, if you forgive my French. It's just something that... St- keeps us as a child inside or something, however you want to say it. But the shame often lies underneath the surface. And we see no way that it can be wiped away. Nothing. Nothing can do it. I can't do it. But Jesus is able to wipe away that shame. If you you hear anything else today, that's what I want you to hear. And he is shown to care about these small details of our lives. He's invited into the feast. Great. You got him there. He's invited into your life, into your heart, as Savior of your life. Wonderful. You got him there. (laughs) However, many times we scramble to hide our shame and take care of it ourselves, even while Jesus is standing there waiting to be asked into it. 
And instead of inviting him into our shame, we began to plan and panic when he could otherwise wash it away and bring us freedom. This is one of the first glimpses, if not the first glimpse, of the kingdom come in the lives of these people. Right here in John chapter 2, and for Mary as well. Jesus is pitching his tent. Remember that terminology from last week. He's dwelling among his people. And change now occurs when we invite him in and give him rule over even the mundane details of our lives. Even the things that scare us to death. Verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, (laughs) what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. That sounds sort of harsh and dismissive, doesn't it? Right? Almost like, don't bother me with that woman. Right? He's tired. It's been a long journey. He may not have known about this wedding, and he's suddenly being thrust into making an appearance with all these people. Many times in Lampung, we, we were forced into situations on the fly. We, we were tired. We had to put on a smile with everybody that you know we may not have known, and we couldn't speak that well and all that kind of stuff. I remember once right after I had taught for nine straight hours in very limited Indonesian, I, I got home and I just wanted to crash. And I've, I've probably told you this story before, but the guy I was staying with stood at my doorway and he said, you can't go to sleep. You got to preach in a half an hour. And I had not prepared a sermon. I didn't know what I was going to say. And, and it was broken Indonesian. And oh, it was horrible, horrible experience. I got through it though. And my Indonesian skyrocketed. I got much better that that weekend. Maybe there was tiredness in his voice. Who knows? But the term he uses, woman, is actually a declaration of respect and gentility towards her. He's making clear, maybe, that, that right after his baptism, he's moving into his ministry. It wasn't really yet time for him to turn on the miracle thing. And perhaps he's reminding her of his greater purposes and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. But contrast is shown because he still has time for the small things which matter greatly to a family at a wedding banquet. Maybe he said it softly and mildly with a smile, implying that he would really love to help. It's the problem with writing. You don't know how it's really written or how it was really said. But divine God acting as kind human right here. Jesus was also dealing with a Jewish mother, and stereotypically we know that they don't take no for an answer too easily, right? You know? His words almost go in one ear and out the other as she turns to all the other the servants there. In, and in verse 5, it says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. You know, they don't have any more wine. You know, woman, what, what do you got to bother me with this for? Oh, do whatever he tells you. You know, she didn't even listen to that, right? But Jesus acts right there. He just acts. Not because he'll be manipulated and not even because she's being manipulative. I'm not saying that, but because he cares about her shame and he cares about the shame of that family involved. He cares even about the details of a wedding in Cana in Galilee in some remote, remote corner of Israel. And here's, here's the special point. Mary knows her son. She knows her son. She raised him. She knew his heart better than anybody else's there that day. She knew that he could take away their shame. She knew that. 
He's invited in, right? Mary, knowing her son, doesn't panic, but goes directly to the source of all things. She goes back to John chapter 1. Her boy, the son of man, the living word of God. That's such a strange thing. And she places all the burden on him. And she turns around giving probably the most simplistic and most pertinent advice that you could give anybody. Do whatever Jesus tells you. Do whatever Jesus tells you. Think on that. Do whatever Jesus tells you. Listening to the voice of God. I asked my wife this morning, do you hear the voice of God? We just watched two popes last night. That whole thing. You watch it, you'll know what I'm referring to. But listening, hearing the voice of God. See, this is an image of prayer right here. In a very real sense. Whether he is standing right here in our presence like he was with Mary, or we're praying to the ascended Christ, he's promised to be with us even to the very end of the age. Do I believe that? Am I listening? Mary chose to go directly to him. Directly to him. And so when we're faced with a situation, do we go straight to Jesus? Or, in our own strength, do we plan and panic and futilely stick our finger in the dam to hold back the flood? I was going to say deluge, but I'm not sure I pronounced that word correctly. (laughs) Somebody did text me about my pronunciation of Logos last week, by the way. Mike Thomas. <laughs> but I'm going to stand my ground. I don't care. <laughs> he's, like, he's, he's like, for the love of all that is good. <laughs> and he sent me a little sound bite. Logos. Ah. But, you know, even the best of planning can't always avoid tragedy. Right? We all know this. We, we control only so much in our lives, don't we? Outside circumstances don't really seem to care or cooperate with our plans sometimes. But Jesus has been known to stop storms and provide money for tax out of the mouth of a fish and raise dead people. And right here, in the, one of the first miracles, he changes water to wine. And he waits to be invited into the issues of life over which we have no control. We really don't. Things that really do need to be surrendered to him. And the difference between Mary and all the other people at that wedding that day was that she knows him intimately. She knows his heart. So how do we get that close? If we could spend time with Jesus, if we could spend time in his word, right? Memorizing, studying his word, uh, spend time with him in prayer, listening to the voice of God, our tendency to automatically go to him in need would increase dramatically. Life would get easier. Mary intuitively does this due to their intimate relationship. Verse 6, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish uh, rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. That's a lot of wine, by the way. 
Um, you know, the Old Testament frequently uses wine as a figure uh, to epitomize the bounty and the, the abundant provision of the, the coming messianic age. And it's, it's interesting that Jesus chooses the ceremonial water jars here normally used for washing, for purification. It's, just, it's almost as if to say, you no longer need to do that. You no longer need to wash. I've come to wash away your shame. And his disciples are later chastised, if you remember, for not washing their hands as tradition dictated. Things are changing with Jesus. Moses changed water to blood in judgment. Jesus changes water to wine in celebration of this new covenant. The kingdom of God, right, breaking into their reality in a new and powerful way, and this is their first glimpse of it. Verses 7 through 10, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, in other words, when they're pretty good tipsy, right, then you bring out the poor wine, right? But you have kept the good wine until now. This is an image of the kingdom of God, breaking in, right? breaking into the mundane reality through very practical need. When Jesus is invited into life and given charge over our need, given charge over the details, he makes the ordinary extraordinary, doesn't he? He he just needs the invitation. It's exactly in the mundane fires of trial which Jesus will come to us in the most unconventional of ways. You remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Thrown into the furnace under Nebuchadnezzar. However, they were unharmed in that fire, right? When, when the king looked into the furnace, he saw a fourth person, which scholars believe was Jesus coming into their aid in the middle of that fire, right? Jesus, the Son of Man, fully God, meets us in our need. And he doesn't call us from some safe distance beyond the clouds, but he walks right in the middle of the fire with us. We have a God that went to the cross. That's a big difference. God often surprises us. Not only does he make the ordinary extraordinary, showing himself to be unconventional and that he's close to us as a personal God, that he enters our world in in great physicality, he often shows himself in uncommon ways. Ceremonial water jars uh, change to wine, right? He, he doesn't sh- follow the social mores you know, of the time. He steps into our reality and he works the miraculous and wonderfully uncommon, unexpected ways. And oftentimes we come to God with a plan for our problems instead of like Mary saying, I'll do whatever you say. I'll do whatever you say. And if we can, he can surprise us. And finally, sometimes when Jesus works, it's absolutely unbelievable. To witness a miracle is an amazing thing. I remember, and I probably have told you this story as well, but I, I remember praying over an unconscious girl in Dushanbe, Tajikistan, with a bunch of friends. Uh, she had a 104-degree fever. She was, 
Uh, she had been down for days. She wasn't moving, little teenage girl. And we prayed over her. Immediately, she just popped up and started running around and playing with her friends. You could have said it was a coincidence. I don't think it was. It was amazing. The head of this banquet didn't know where the wine had come from, but it was the best, right? Just another image of how wonderful the kingdom of God is as it breaks in, right? It makes things better. It makes life better. The servants knew where it had come from, and I imagine they were amazed, right? You know, at one point, Jesus miraculously miraculously feeds 5,000. You remember that story? Well, at another point, he feeds 4,000. I don't know if you know that, but the first time, they seem really amazed, and the second time, not so much. We get kind of used to our miracles, don't we? We need to be constantly aware of Jesus' presence and activity in our lives. Those who walk with Jesus for years tend to grow blind to all that he's done and is doing in their lives. When we're carrying burdens and they're suddenly changed to blessings or even outright miracles, we may have grown complacent to notice. A good spiritual practice is to keep a prayer journal, right? And every, every once in a while, go back and read through your prayer journal, what you've written in the past, and you'll notice that Jesus has been answering your prayers all along in very unbelievable, uncommon, unconventional, and extraordinary ways. Another good practice is to do a daily examine. You can get the app on your phone. At night, Just sit quietly with Jesus. Go back through your day asking yourself, where did God meet me today? Where did he show up? And just be quiet and let him speak and let him remind you how he whispered into your life. Finally, verse 11, it ends by saying this, uh, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So their faith was solidified as they witnessed this and Jesus, as the word of God, they see is all powerful. Jesus, as the son of man, they see as close and personal and caring. Two sides to him. Two very real sides. God came in the person of Jesus and he made his dwelling among us. He walked with people. He was rugged. He was strong. He attended weddings in small towns. He met the simple needs of simple people like you and me. And he's here right now. Invite him in. Call on him. No matter how mundane your need seems and witness what he will do. Watch what he will do. See, usually people make the mistake of inviting Jesus into their lives only to neglect him, uh, to invite him into the details of life, right? They never call on him. They never ask. They never listen. They never do as he'd have them to do. He's left as a wallflower at the reception instead of invited to dance with us. And the cross stays the same size for such people as trouble and responsibility and stress grows in life. And it seems to them that Jesus absolutely does nothing. But he's not been asked. There's no relationship. 
we're often like the sick people I would encounter in Indonesia, right? Very poor people. We would, you know, I don't blame them, but we'd take them to the doctor. We'd get them 10 days of antibiotics, and they would take three to five days until they felt better. Then they would sell the rest of the pills, right? And what would happen? They'd get sick again. It does no good to accept Jesus as Savior only for a dream of, the he- of heaven in the future, but deny that relationship with him right now. The, God, the kingdom has come and is coming. It's here now, and it's going to be fully established in the future. We can participate right now. We, we're called to cultivate intimacy with Christ and rely on him every day. If you can do that, if you can rely on him, lean on him, trust him, submit to him, and follow him, the cross grows proportionately to your problems, and you will never be overtaken. I'm not saying it'll always be easy, but you will never be crushed, right? Mary knew who to call on, and she knew what to do. Her intimacy with her son Right meant that she intuitively knew that he could and would take away their shame. She simply called on him, giving the really good advice, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. And so that's my advice for you today. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your divinity. Jesus, we also thank you for your humanity. We thank you that you came with a body. It makes a difference. We thank you that you came and you understood our trials and our troubles and the weights that we bear and the promises you have given us that you will be with us to the very ends of the age and that you can wash away our shame. We are so grateful for that. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. I'm going to pass the tithe boxes in the front. We are a self-supporting ministry. Seth, could you grab that one?